Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 11. And let me tell you what, I'm, what I hope to do tonight. Two things. I want to accomplish two things. I want to try to wrap up this paragraph. Uh, verses 1 through 6 is a paragraph. And then I want to leave you with some lessons about this paragraph. So let me read you the paragraph and, and show you... Um, let me show you what the subject of verse 6 is. It's pretty clear, but let me read you six verses. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And here's the text. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, guys, last week or two weeks ago, we looked at verse 5, and we talked about this remnant that was chosen by grace. What is it that guarantees that there will always be a faithful remnant? Well, because there's always going to be some good, fine, moral, upstanding, decent people out there. No, ladies and gentlemen. What guarantees that there's always going to be a remnant is grace. God's grace. God's sovereign grace. In this section, in this paragraph, verses 1 through 6, Paul is arguing against any supposition that God is done with Israel. And his argument um, in or it, it all, his argument boils down to this. That is, is, is he through with Israel? No, he's not through with Israel. And the reason that we can be confident there will always be a remnant is, here's, here's his argument, there will always be those chosen by grace. Um, and then he, of course, includes those two illustrations. One of those illustrations is himself. The other illustration is uh, Elijah saying, there's nobody out here but me. And God says, yes, there is. There's 7,000 out there chosen by grace. Then he goes on to mention, or it's almost somewhat of an aside. It's not really an aside, but, it, but, but he says in verse 6, if it is then by grace, or if it is by grace, it is no longer um, on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So the two things that I want to do tonight is try to define for you grace and then draw some lessons from the paragraph. Two things. Let's, let's take a look at what grace is, and then we'll wrap up the paragraph with some applications. Um, guys, um, <clears throat> grace is a richly, profoundly deep theological word. Now, I know that you have been taught or you have heard in some place that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. I bet you many of you have heard that little acrostic. Well, there's nothing wrong about that. It's a nice try, but it doesn't, it doesn't begin to plumb the depths of the word or, the, or, or it doesn't begin to tell you what grace is. Robert um, Haldane, one of the commentaries that I lean on, he said, Grace is necessarily and obviously implied in every other doctrine of the gospel. <laughs> that is, in every doctrine that you think impinges upon the gospel, grace 
um, is, is his backdrop. So to confine it to God's riches at Christ's expense is, is, is not to mislead you. It's just not, just not to do service to, um, to the whole idea of grace. So, having said that, what is it? What is grace? Let me, let me just mention three or four sentences that, that I hope combined will give you a decent understanding. Grace is God's unmerited favor apart from anything seen or foreseen in its object. Grace is a favor or favor shown to people who deserve the opposite. Grace is the thing that points us to God's willingness to forgive when there is absolutely no basis of that forgiveness except in who he is and what he's done. Grace points you to the predisposition on the part of God to restore those who had offended him. Now, in all of those sentences, there was one common little <clears throat> part of it that made up, was in each one of those sentences, and that is this. The backdrop for an understanding of grace is a profound sense of personal sin. Because of grace addresses the issues of sin. Granting favor to those who deserve the opposite because of their sin. You see. Um, without a, 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 um, a good understanding, not, that's not the right word, without, without a, a broad understanding of sin, grace will never be enjoyed, or at least it won't be appreciated. You know, interestingly, um, the word grace is used eight times in the Old Testament. It's used 128 times in the New Testament. And 81 of those are used by the Apostle Paul. Because most, uh, I mean, Paul is the teacher of grace. I guess the most exhaustive um, mention of grace is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, which I'll read. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But do you see what I'm saying? Sin is the backdrop for a right, a right understanding of grace. He goes on. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a sense in which, ladies and gentlemen, to understand and appreciate and enjoy grace, the first thing that you need to do is get a real good grip on sin and what it's done to us. Paul sticks in that verse 6 there because he, I, I'm guessing, but that after he mentioned this 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, he's thinking that undoubtedly there would be somebody in his audience that would conclude that the reason that those 7,000, that remnant, still existed are because there's just some real good people in the world. And so he, to correct that false notion, he says... But if it's by grace, and it's no longer by works, because otherwise, other grace is no longer grace. Guys, the point of verse 6 is that grace and works are incompatible opposites. 
grace, uh, verse 6 is a comparison of opposites. An, an eternal antithesis between grace and works. It cannot be both. Um, it's either one or the other, but it's not both. Now, guys, what, what I want to try and do is just take this grace thing and imagine that it's some kind of gemstone and kind of hold it up to the light and, and try to see it uh, within some of its beauty. Okay, so I'm going to try to give you just some, some illustrations of what grace means. And to do that, I'm going to draw in some, some other things that will affect the way that you understand grace. All right? So kind of bear with me. All right. Um, you ask somebody, um, why is it that some people are saved and some people are not saved? Well, Paul's answer to that question is um, they are chosen by grace. That's Paul's answer. But if you ask the average evangelical in the 21st century, why is it that some are saved and some are lost? Their, their reply would be something like this. The reason that there are some saved is because they had faith. Now think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Do you see what you have done by saying something like that? You have said that the reason that these people are saved is because of something that they did. What did they do? They exercised faith. So you have turned faith into a work, which is the very thing that Paul is trying to thwart with this statement in verse 6. Do you see that? Let me, let me try to give you just another. Um, you see, grace and anything that smacks of a work are universal opposites. Um... They cannot be reconciled in any way. Uh, let me give you another, just again, just trying to help you get a look at it, the thing. You know what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Grace, excuse me, faith is the product of or the result of regeneration. That means that regeneration must occur first and the product or result of it is faith. If you reverse that, you once again have turned faith into a work. Do you see that? Any other explanation of grace, that is, any other, any other explanation of faith, that is, um, that it's a product of regeneration, it flows out of regeneration, any other explanation than that, <clears throat> makes faith a work. It's something that you performed. It's something that you did. Faith is the result 
of this gracious work of God in regeneration. Um, very honestly, guys, I think our understanding of grace is influenced by our... Well, I know it is. It's, it's influenced by our, um, by our understanding of the, the impact of the fall in us. Now, let me see if I can explain that. Guys, we all believe that the fall that's recorded in Genesis 3 affected everybody, don't we? But how did it affect them? Across the centuries, there's been three suggestions. One is what's been called Pelagianism. Pelagianism is a, uh, came from a guy by the name of Pelagius. Um, Pelagianism says that the fall really didn't affect us. We we're, in, we're in abject, wonderful moral health, and there was really no effect uh, of the fall whatsoever. Okay? The, the second option was what is known as semi-Pelagianism. Don't let me make me write that word again. Uh, semi-Pelagianism, <clears throat> which says this. The effect of, fall, of the fall of Genesis 3, remember that? The effect of that was to make us sick. Yes, yes, yes. The fall has made us very spiritually, morally sick. And um, we need help. We need help because of our sickness. And grace is the helper. But ultimately, you must choose whether or not you're going to respond to grace. Now, do you see again, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to illustrate is what Paul is saying in verse 6. These are mutually exclusive. If you say that you're sick and that you need the help of grace, what have you turned it into? Once again, it has become a work. That is, you, this grace thing is available, but ultimately it's only efficacious if you do something. The, the, the other position is, it doesn't have a name like that, a nice name like that. It's simply that the fall rendered you spiritually dead. Guys, do you remember in, um, well, it's in Ephesians 2, 1. But the one that I, I want to quote for you is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. And, and God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, um, Adam, Eve, you can eat all those trees out there, all of them. They're all yours. Just eat all you want. But um, there's one tree that you can't touch. And in the day that you eat thereof, Ye shall surely. What's the next word? Get sick. <laughs> Way to go, Dave. Uh, um, guys, it says, In the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. Now, we flip over a chapter. Adam disobeys. He eats. What happens to him? Is Genesis 2.17 an idle threat? Hey, y'all don't eat that tree, and if you do, you're going to die. Did God mean that? Well, they ate. Did they die? 
Ladies and gentlemen, if they didn't, then you cannot trust a thing God says. But they didn't die physically, they died morally. They died spiritually. The effect of the fall is to render man dead. He doesn't need help. He needs a resurrection. Gang, just just try to get this, but can you see if you need help? I mean, this is not even true, but I'm going to illustrate. If you need if you're if you're just sick and you need help, grace is this. But if you're dead and you need resurrection, grace is this. If all you need is just a little, you know, little little assist in the whole project here, Grace is a, is a one thing. But if you are told that spiritually you have no abilities to... What you need is resurrection. And that's what um, grace tells us God is willing to grant. Resurrection. <laughs> he does it in, in the regeneration... And then, as a, respond, in, as a result of that regeneration, faith is born. Any other understanding of your condition, other than that, turns faith into a work. I want to show you just an illustration of that, and then we'll, we'll try to... I'm just trying to give you a, a bigger picture of what grace has done. Grace has overtaken dead men and granted forgiveness to those who deserve the opposite. L- let me show you this, and I-, I want you to see if you can find Genesis 19 real quick. You remember the guy by the name of Lot? That was um, Abraham's um, Abraham's nephew. And Lot made a few bad decisions, and he's now living in Sodom. Remember that? And then the angels come to get his family out of Sodom. Remember that? Okay, so the angels come. Look at verse 15. This is 1915. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And so Lot, being overtaken with the sense of his own guilt and shame, grabbed his wife and family, packed their bags, got the family... Uh, auto and headed out of Sodom as fast as they could. Is that what your text says? The, the angels, God sends angels to Sodom to get Lot and his family out of there. Get up, get up, get up. God's about to pour judgment. And what does Lot do? He lingered. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you just read on a few more words and find out how Lot got out of there. He was dragged. The angels taking by the hand and said, Come on, buddy, you're getting out of here. Left to himself, he would have stayed in Sodom. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, left to ourselves, all of us will stay in Sodom. We love sin. We love sin. All of us. And so the angel comes and says, 
Oh, you're going all right, and I'm going to see to it. Guys, I, I always love to do this, and then we'll, I mean, I won't say any more, but we'll just kind of wrap it up. Um, I always love to do this to people. But, but um, I, I've done it so often, you're all wise to me. But uh, if you've never heard this, you ought to take a look at it one of these days because it'll, it just kind of, ooh, ooh, I've never, I've never noticed that before. It's in John chapter 3, verse 3. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, in, in verse 2, he says, Jesus, nobody could be, uh, uh, you've got to be a man of God because nobody can do what you're doing unless you're from God. And Jesus kind of ignores what he says and Jesus' reply is this. Hey, Nick, unless you're born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And the, the thing that people don't seem to notice in that text is the word see. Ladies and gentlemen, unless you are born from above, you can't even see it. Because you're dead. So what has this gracious God of ours done? He's exchanged a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. He's granted us new life in the rebirth. And as a product of that, faith is born. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is a God of immense grace. Not just a helper. No, no, no. He's the author from beginning, from front to back. What has happened to us, ladies and gentlemen, is a display of sovereign grace. And um, everything about it is an opposite of anything that smacks of a work. Try to add something to it and you've ruined it. You know, when Jonah did pull his little stunt and, um, um, you know, he heads off to Tarshish and God gets him and he has this little ride in a seagoing taxi. Um, in, the, in the belly of that whale... Jonah says something, ladies and gentlemen, that is the summary. It is, it is the summary of what I'm trying to say about grace. He says in Jonah chapter 2, while he's still in the belly of the whale, realizing what he's done and that God is, he says simply this, salvation belongs to the Lord. It does. That's what grace is. Salvation belongs to the Lord from front to back, beginning to end, uh, top to bottom. It's God working to bring about this closure with Christ. Grace is not this. Grace is this. And it has to be this. Because we left to ourselves love, sin, and would live in it. Now, um, I got eight minutes. Let, let me just close with a couple of just applications or lessons, whatever you want to call them, from the paragraph, not from really verse six, really 
from the paragraph. I'm trying to just tie up this paragraph uh, before we talk about politics next week. Um, guys, you remember it's the story of Elijah that's in verses 4 and 5. And Elijah, I've told you that story before. Elijah goes and he challenges the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And, you know, there's this big hoop de doo And, and then uh, God answers from heaven and Elijah, the, the, the sacrifice is consumed. And, and everybody says, oh, 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 Elijah was right. And so he says, yeah, go kill all the prophets of Baal. And he does. They do. Um, I want you to turn to 1 Kings 19. That, or Actually, the story's in 18, but this, the story goes on in 19. <clears throat> I said this earlier, but guys... Um, after this great victory in the name of Yahweh on the, Mount, on, on the top of Mount Carmel, Ahab, who is the king, his wife hears about it. His wife's name is Jezebel. You've heard of her. Uh, Jezebel says, if he lives another 24 hours, um, I'm not the queen. I mean, she, she vows to get him. And then I, I want to I show you, this is in 19.3 and 4. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, ladies and gentlemen, only a few days earlier, he had been used of God in a way that none of us have ever been. You know, this whole big scene on Carmel, you know. And look at him now. What is he? He's afraid. He's run. He's depressed. He wants to die. And you know what I say about that? I say, hallelujah. Because, ladies and gentlemen, that's a Christian acting like that. All I'm saying is, I'm glad to see somebody else Loses confidence in God. Like I have. I'm glad to see somebody else get depressed. Like I have. I'm glad to see somebody else pray to die. Like I have. Sometimes you get in situations and you wonder if it's just this, if it's, if life means this much pain, I don't want any more of it. Just cut mine short now. Elijah did that, guys. I'm not trying to encourage sin. I'm not trying to applaud his sin. I'm simply saying it's awfully comforting to know that somebody that God used so marvelously can, can also include this kind of breach of faith. One other thing, or a couple more things. Look at verse 10. Same, this, is, this is the story that Paul alludes to in, in Romans 11. But um, look at verse 9, 19, 9. Uh, there he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the Lord God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It all depends on me. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Um, the church 
of Jesus Christ is going to be fine with me or without me. Have you ever seen that song? Um, I don't know the tune. In fact, I don't even know the words, <laughs> but I'm going to sing it anyway. <laughs> um, but it goes something like this. Oh, God has no hands but my hands and no feet but my feet. Let me tell you what, ladies and gentlemen. If God only has my hands and my feet, he's in trouble. It's not up to me, ladies and gentlemen. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. Um, He'll do just fine with me or without me. The other thing, um, I I just mentioned this in passing. Don't, Don't get carried away with numbers. There were 850 prophets of Baal versus one. And you see what happened. Have you ever heard this little line? It's from a poem by James Russell Lowell. I bet you have heard this. It's truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. You ever heard that line? Truth forever on the scaffold. Yeah. Wrong forever on the throne. Who's reigning, ladies and gentlemen? Wrong. What's being chopped to pieces? Truth. It's always been like that. Finally, or not quite finally, almost finally, it's always too soon to give up, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm going to say something that will wake some of you up, but it's always too soon to quit. There's, there's always, it's always too soon to say, oh, to hell with it. Y- you know, I, I feel that emotion so acutely and i think others i think others of you do too over the issues of absolutes and inerrancy and exclusivity you know what i mean the existence of absolutes do you know what a minority we're in that we believe that absolutes exist or inerrancy that this book is absolutely inspired or in um, exclusivity that is jesus christ is the only way to heaven i get so disgusted by thinking, is there any of us left? Well, guys, it's just, um, I love this statement that God um, makes to Elijah in verse 9. He says, what are you doing here? (laughs) Why did you give up? Get your little honey out of this cave and get back down there and get to work. What are you doing here? Um, it's always too soon, ladies and gentlemen, to throw in the towel. Um, the, the, the thrust of verse 6 of Romans 11 is, ladies and gentlemen, grace and works are opposite. You live by works and you will perish by works. What you're asking, if you want to live by works, is you're asking God to give you justice. And ask for a lot of things, ladies and gentlemen. But don't ever ask Him to give you justice. Don't ever ask God to give you what you deserve. Don't ever do that. Quick story and I'm done. After World War I, uh, some of you are too young to even remember that, there was a World War I. There was a World War II also, but this was even before that one. It was in the, the early 1900s, 1914, 1919, something like that. Um... In fact, they called it the Great War because uh, I, it was 
just carnage. But anyway, um, after or at the in, at the close of World War One, um, the president of the United States was a guy by the name of Woodrow Wilson. I know you hadn't ever heard of him, but Woodrow Wilson was the president. And he put forth this 14-point plan that was supposed to develop or it was to establish peace between the Allies and, and Germany. It was a 14-point plan. <clears throat> the, the prime minister of, um, of France was a guy by the name of Clemenceau, and, um, or Clemenceau, I don't know how you, but um, he didn't like Wilson's plan. And he didn't like, like Wilson's plan because um, probably he was French and, and uh, the plan came from America, and you know how French and Americans are. But he didn't like the plan, and, and, and he made fun of it. And on one occasion, he said, and I'm quoting, um, 14 points, even God Almighty only has 10. No, ladies and gentlemen, he doesn't. The, the, the plan for peace that God has contains only one point. And that one point is simply that you give up trying to impress him with all of your good little deeds. And instead of that, embrace the God-provided Savior. One is grace. One is works. And they are eternal opposites. Our Father, I pray that you will convince your people that grace is greater than all our sin, but it's greater also than we ever fathomed that it was. That grace was not our helper. Grace overtook us, brought us from death to life, and we have embraced this Savior, this God-provided Savior, because we have been dragged out of Sodom into safety, overtaken by grace. We will sing of the matchless grace of Almighty God until we can sing no longer. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.